I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, or sorry, not Philippians, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and as you turn there, I just want to remind you that today is the, um, the last opportunity uh, to give towards the Ukraine refugee crisis. We have envelopes um, on the welcome table. Uh, there are two churches that are connected to our uh, association, the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches, but there are two churches in Poland um, who we are connected to who are helping refugees coming in from Ukraine. And so we've provided a way for uh, you to be able to give towards that initiative. You can either give through cash, and if you give it through cash, put it in one of those colored or spotted envelopes, and that, that way we will, we will know that that money is directly given towards that or you can write a check, and in your check, write it to Royal York Baptist Church, and then in the memo, put Ukraine Refugee Crisis. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read this morning from verse 13 to 21, but we're just going to simply focus on the last verse in verse 21 this morning. But I want to read from verse 13 to give us some context. So this is what Peter says. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, we simply ask that by the power of your spirit, you would illumine our minds and soften our hearts to receive your word this morning. That the truth of your word would create in us a love and a delight for Jesus Christ and all that you have done through him. That we would treasure you. That you would give us faith and give us hope Faith that we cannot conjure up in ourselves, but faith that can only be given by you. The light of faith. Do that here this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we know that throughout history, there are events that are ground-shaking. Events that alter all of world history and really society. You think of, for example, the rise and the fall of Rome. Or you even think of philosophical um, ideas, systems that have infiltrated into our world and have impacted what has happened in our world. You think of what Marxism and communism produced in our world. 
Millions, millions and millions of people who have died at the hands of a philosophical system. You think of the event of the Enlightenment and the impact that that has had on our society. We are still experiencing the implications of the Enlightenment today. In fact, in many ways, we are seeing the full fruition of the Enlightenment today. Or you think of World War I or World War II and that moment, that event that changed the world forever. The rise of Hitler and the fall of Hitler. Imagine if Germany had won that war. The implications for world history. Or you think of the abolition of slavery in the States, but first you think of it in the British Empire under the the fight and the work of William Wilberforce and other men and women who gave their lives to ending slavery in the British Empire. These are all events that have major implications on world history, but there is no historical event that has shaped the history of our world more than the event of the resurrection of Jesus. The claim of the resurrection of Jesus has forever altered and changed our world. For it has given people hope that death doesn't have the final word over the human race. Now, it's an outrageous claim to the modern mind. And even the New Testament writers know that it's outrageous. But nevertheless, the scriptures, without any hesitation, claim it to be true. And millions and millions of people have believed it throughout history. Today, there are hundreds of millions of people who are gathering with fellow Christians to worship God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. G.E. Ladd said this, The entire New Testament was written from the perspective of the resurrection. Indeed, the resurrection may be called the major premise of the early Christian faith. See, what Ladd understood was that without the resurrection, Good Friday, the death of Jesus, actually has no eternal significance whatsoever. What we believe about Jesus' death, that he died for our sins, rests upon whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so this morning, I simply want to focus in on what Peter says, what he claims in 1 Peter 1, verse 21. Now, within the context, uh, Peter is calling the believers, uh, those who he refers to as elect exiles in verse 1, he calls them to set their hope fully on the grace that that is to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 13. And then he calls them to be holy in light of this great future hope that they have. But he grounds it in the death of Jesus. That because they were ransomed by the blood of Jesus, they ought to conduct themselves in a manner that reflects the holiness of God. And then in verse 20 to 21, he provides almost a summary of the life of Jesus where he states he was foreknown, that is, foreordained by God before the foundation of the world. That's a reference to the pre-existence of Christ. God foreknew that the Son of God would be ordained to redeem the world. And then he says this, but was made manifest. 
That's the incarnation. Christ clothed himself in humanity. He was made manifest in the last times, that is the last days, the last period, that is we are living in the last days from the death of Christ to his return for the sake of you. That is the believers that Peter is writing to. He's saying Christ was manifested in the flesh for your sake, who through him, verse 21, that is through Jesus, you have become believers in God. And then he says this, this God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's where I want to spend our time this morning. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the first thing that I want us to see is that Christianity, the scriptures, the the writers of the New Testament claim that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is what Easter Sunday is all about. This is why Christians on a yearly basis across the world take time to ponder this reality that the God of this universe raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. As the Apostles' Creed states, the third day he rose again from the dead. You see, the claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ, though he was crucified and died on Friday and was buried, That come Sunday, he broke forth from the grave, conquering death itself. But here's a really important question. Is it true? Is it true? That question really does matter because, to be frank, if it isn't true, we truly are wasting our times here this morning. In fact, we've been wasting our time as professing Christians if the claim that Jesus rose from the dead is actually false. You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he's still dead. And we're worshiping a man who's in the grave. This is why Tim Keller once stated, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hands is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. See, no other religious leader has ever been worshipped by humans. Muslims don't worship Muhammad. Hindus don't worship Gandhi, or even though he wasn't the founder. But the reason Christians worship Jesus is because they believe that Jesus was not merely human, but that he was the Son of God clothed in humanity. And part of the reason for this belief is because they believe he actually rose from the dead. You see, Christianity makes historical claims. And if those historical claims are not true, then our faith is not true. For example, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the disciples of Jesus would never have looked at the crucifixion of Jesus as the means of redemption and salvation. They would never have viewed the death of Jesus as a victory. It wasn't until they became eyewitnesses of his resurrection that they were convinced that his death was actually an act of victory over sin and death. That though he suffered and died on the cross, he was actually conquering sin and death 
in his own death and humiliation. But if there's no resurrection, then the death of Jesus is simply a historical event of a decent man, or really an immoral man, because the claims that he made about himself were not true, and that he was wrongfully condemned. It has no bearing on our lives. There's no eternal significance. Good Friday is just Friday. See, the Apostle Paul understood this with great clarity. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul devotes a whole chapter to the resurrection, and he says some very startling things in 1 Corinthians 15. He basically states that the claims of Christianity can be verified or falsified. And if the claims regarding the resurrection of Jesus can be falsified, then Christianity is the greatest lie ever told. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This was the most important thing to the Apostle Paul. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared after the resurrection to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. You see, Paul summarizes the message he received. Christ died according to the scriptures. Good Friday. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day. And then he speaks to the eyewitnesses, those whom the resurrected Christ appeared to. He lists the apostles, but also 500 witnesses at one time, many of whom that at, many of whom at the time Paul wrote the letter of Corinthians were still actually alive. Now, why is Paul telling us this? Why is he saying that he appeared to 500 witnesses? Well, because he wants the believers that he's writing to in Corinth to understand that there were actual people who saw the resurrected Jesus and that if one wanted to hear their testimony, they could. In other words, he's saying, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. And then a little further on, Paul goes into his argumentation, articulating the implications if Christ did not rise from the dead. He says in verses 14 to 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now that's startling. That means that for the last three years, I have been preaching in vain if Christ has not been raised. And the faith that you claim to have is actually no faith at all. Not only that, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised for the last three years, pastoring Royal York Baptist Church, I have been misrepresenting God. Because Paul says, we testified about God that He raised Christ. And then he goes on a little further. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I know most of you, 
And I know that most of you will testify to the fact that Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins. But Paul says this, that if Christ hasn't been raised, you're lying to yourself. You're still in your sins if Christ has not been raised. And then he says this about the dead. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is those who were followers of Jesus here in this life, those who have died in Christ, have perished. Your friends, my family members, your family members, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, if Christ has not been raised right now, those that we think are with the Lord have actually perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, Paul is banking everything, everything on the trustworthiness and reliability of the resurrection of Jesus. Luke begins his gospel account, the life of Jesus, addressing the most excellent Theophilus. And and this is what he says to this, this man, Theophilus. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Do you hear what Luke's saying? Luke's saying, I have, I have followed everything closely. I knew the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. And I have followed them closely and listened to them. And so I thought it would be wise for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And then he says this, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. What was he taught? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, Luke wants to provide account for this most excellent Theophilus to give him certainty regarding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. A lot of people accuse Christianity of being a myth today. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths Myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, why am I drawing our attention to all of these passages? Because the authors of the New Testament were not writing some spiritual philosophy on how to live a better life. I dare you to go read other religious books, go and read the Quran. And then read the Gospels and the New Testament, and you will see a stark difference between what is going on. Most religions give you abstract, philosophical ideas in order to be enlightened and to live a spiritual life. But that's not what Christianity offers. Christianity is rooted in history. It's rooted in things that actually took place. See, they were writing about historical events that they saw with their own eyes and were explaining the theological significance of those events. And they all lost their lives 
for believing what they believed and testifying to what they saw. You see, if you refuse to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, please hear me this morning. Before you refuse, you have to take seriously the claims of the authors of the New Testament if you're remotely serious about the truth. You may dismiss them, but at least take them seriously. Because there are really only three options. The three options are simple. The disciples, the apostles, the first option is this. They were utterly delusional. And they all died believing in their delusions. But if you read the gospel accounts and the letters of Paul and Peter, these men do not come across as delusional. Secondly, the other option is that they intentionally lied and were willing to die for a lie. And one has to ask, what gain would there be for them in this? Many people have died for what they truly believed was true, but no one, no one has been willing to die for what they knew was a lie. There was nothing for these Jewish men to gain by intentionally lying about the resurrection of Jesus. They lost everything for claiming that Jesus had died and rose for again, rose again. But for them, it was worth it because they believed it was true. And that's the third option, that Christ really did rise from the dead and they were all eyewitnesses to it. Now you might say, yeah, but Peter, seriously, like resurrection? Come on. People don't rise from the dead. That's not humanly possible. And you're right. It's not humanly possible. But the scriptures don't claim that it's humanly possible. Look at the verse. What's the claim? God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. As the scriptures testify, what is impossible for man is possible with God. It was by the power of God that Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, if you believe there is an all-powerful God, that it's not remotely unreasonable nor illogical to believe that God can raise the dead. In fact, the scriptures tie the resurrection of Jesus with the same power that created the universe because the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. The same power that spoke the universe into existence, Genesis 1, in the beginning there was God is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. This is what Christians believe. This is what the Apostle Peter and Paul believed. And both of them gave their lives to testifying to this creed, and both of them died because of their commitment to this creed. God raised Jesus from the dead. Now you might say, but Peter, the the people back then were so naive, so primitive in their thinking. They all were prone to believe old wives' tales. They were all prone to believe in the dead coming back to life. But that's just not actually true. For one, the people in the past were not naive and primitive in their thinking. When people say that, it's called chronological snobbery. That's the term C.S. Lewis used for people who look at the past with their noses on top of people. Read the Apostle Paul 
and genuinely ask yourself, was this man primitive in his thinking? Secondly, the writers of the New Testament write about the resurrection as the first of its kind. They write about it with the same shock and amazement that we would write about it if it happened in our day. In other words, this wasn't something that they just believed was a normal thing. They believed something extraordinary happened, and they couldn't deny it. C.S. Lewis writes about this when he says, There is not in Scripture the faintest suggestion that the resurrection was new evidence for something that had in fact been always happening. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. Which means, if it was a lie, they probably wouldn't have been very successful in convincing people. See, this is why, friends, the Gospels record for us that when Jesus died, the disciples had completely lost all hope. They truly believed that their Messiah was gone. There were lots of Messiahs at that time, and all those movements died when their Messiah, supposed Messiah, died. And that's why when the women told the disciples that they had seen the risen Jesus, most of them did not believe until they they themselves saw Jesus. Thomas was so adamant that Christ rising from the dead was impossible, that he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side where he was pierced, I will never believe. And yet against all odds, all these men who were once filled with despair, overnight were filled with glorious hope and began testifying that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the one who rose from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, and if he did, that has major implications for all of our lives. Secondly, God has exalted Jesus. Peter says God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Gave him glory. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God the Father bestowed upon Jesus glory and honor. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus wasn't receiving something that was new. God the Father wasn't bestowing upon Jesus something that Jesus never had. Rather, God was bestowing on Jesus what he had already had. But now through the resurrection, it is becoming public knowledge. He was not receiving a glory that he did not have. Rather, he was receiving a glory that was once his, but now made known. You see, part of the beauty of the gospel is that Christ did not start in a state of humiliation and then received glory and honor, but rather he, as the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, before his incarnation, he already had the same glory and majesty of the Father. And the beauty of the gospel is that as the divine Son of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He went from glory to humiliation, and then through his humiliation, he once received glory and honor, but the glory that was already his. This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, he had the same nature as God, he shared the same essence as God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The divine Son of God emptied himself by actually putting on himself human flesh. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was the humiliation of Christ. But it's because of this humiliation that Paul then says, therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Verse 9 assumes the resurrection. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was his glorification. God glorified his Son. And this is why in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he makes this request to his Father. And listen to what he says in John 17, verses 4 to 5. I glorified you on earth. Jesus is speaking to his heavenly Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So when Peter says here that God the Father gave Jesus glory, the glory he's receiving from the Father is the glory that he already had before the world existed as the Son of God. But now through the resurrection, it's been revealed. It's been made public. Before Jesus came in human flesh, we didn't know about the glory of the Son. Romans 1, 1 1-4, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and then it says this, and was declared... To be the Son of God, or revealed to be the Son of God, or or pronounced to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Further, this giving of glory to Jesus is giving Him the rightful place of authority and lordship over all things. See, after Jesus rises from the dead and before he ascends to the Father's right hand, in Matthew 28, Jesus commissions the disciples. And what's the first thing he says to them in his commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, through the resurrection, all authority has been bestowed upon Jesus Christ. Paul alludes to this in Ephesians 1, 20-23, where he speaks about the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's his ascension. Far above all rule and authority and power 
and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Through the resurrection and the ascension, Christ receives the glory and the honor and the authority that is rightly his. This is why Psalm 24, which speaks of the ascension of Jesus, he's referred to as the king of glory. And all the other kings of this world will answer to him. Which means, which means that Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat, but a victory. A victory. God giving him glory in the resurrection was God's stamp of delight and approval over Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for sins. The resurrection was God's way of declaring to the world that what Jesus did on the cross was in fact an act of triumph displayed through weakness. As Leslie Newbegin says, the resurrection is the revelation to chosen witnesses of the fact that Jesus who died on the cross is indeed king, conqueror of death and sin, Lord and Savior of all. The resurrection is not the reversal of a defeat, but the proclamation of a victory. The king reigns from the tree. The reign of God has indeed come upon us, and its sign is not a golden throne, but a wooden cross and an empty tomb. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and gave him the glory and majesty that rightfully belonged to him and him alone. He is the Lord of all. And you owe him your allegiance. Thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus is the grounds for our faith and hope in God. The resurrection of Jesus is the grounds for our faith and hope in God. According to Peter, why did God raise Jesus from the dead and give him glory? Well, he says, so that your faith and hope are in God. The reason God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him was so that you and I would place our faith, our confidence, and our hope in God. To do what exactly? I mean, why should we place our faith and confidence in God simply because he raised Jesus from the dead? Well, here's, here's the logic. We place our faith and hope in God believing that those who have been united to Jesus Christ by faith will also overcome death and experience resurrection life just as Christ overcame death and rose. In other words, our faith and hope are in God because we believe God will not allow death to have the final word over our lives, but that resurrection will be the final word. See, if you look at the entire context of 1 Peter, the whole chapter is focused around the hope that we as followers of Jesus have in regards to our future inheritance. 1 Peter 1.3 begins like this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, look at this, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then He begins to unpack what this living hope is all about that has come to us through the resurrection of Christ. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it's being kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, this future salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is something that's future-oriented. This is something that God is, is holding on for us, so to speak, something that will come to us at the last time. It will be revealed. And then you jump down to verse 13, and Peter once again brings up this hope as he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is this future salvation, this future grace, this inheritance that is coming to followers of Jesus Christ at the revelation of Christ, that is at His return. But understand this. That future hope, that future grace, that future salvation can only come to us through resurrection life. Jesus received this glory, this inheritance by rising from the dead. And so those who are united to Christ by faith will also receive this inheritance by rising from the dead. This is precisely what Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 4. 13 to 14, where he says this, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Then he says this, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you, that is the believers in Corinth, into his presence. This is why the Apostles' Creed ends with, I believe in the resurrection from the dead and the life everlasting. It's through the resurrection of the dead that we enter into life everlasting with Christ as our Redeemer and our King. See, this is why Peter tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave Him glory so that our faith and our hope would be in God and God alone. Now I think it's important to define what faith and hope are. What's the difference between faith and hope? They're so similar. In fact, when you read the scriptures, you, you see them often repeated together on several occasions. They are in some ways the, 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 the opposite sides of the same coin. So what's the difference between faith and hope? Well, I think Hebrews 11.1 1 captures the difference where the writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Here's how I think about it. Hope in the scriptures can be used in several different ways depending on the context. But in general, the most accurate idea of hope in the scriptures is a confident expectation for something that lies in the future. Okay, that's important. There's two parts to that idea of hope. It's a confident expectation 
And it's future-oriented. It's something that is fixed upon the future. So it's not just wishful thinking, but there is legitimate grounds to have confident expectation for something in the future. That's hope. Now that sounds a lot like faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. See, faith and hope can in some ways be used as synonyms. But here's what I would suggest. Faith is the larger picture that hope fits into. Faith is the larger picture that hope faith fits into. Here's what I mean. Hope is always, hope is always tied to something in the future. Whereas faith, according to the scriptures, can be tied to the future, but also the present and the past. For example, faith, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the conviction of things not seen. That's not just future. That's present. Hebrews 11.3 captures faith in the past. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. See, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We don't hope he did. We believe he did. Whereas we hope that Christ will come again, future-oriented, but also we believe that Christ will come again. So here in 1 Peter, Peter, I think, is persuading us to place our faith in the truth that God raised Christ from the dead. That's a past event. And therefore, to hope in God for our future resurrection. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is the grounds for our faith and our hope in God. If God raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory, we ought to believe that to be true and hope that God will also raise us from the dead and give us glory. Now, I want you to notice there is an assumption about faith and hope that the Apostle Peter makes. And the assumption is this. We all have faith and hope. The Bible doesn't really speak of those who have faith and those who don't in one sense. The Bible speaks about all of humanity having faith. But the object of their faith is the real issue. See, Peter's not arguing for you and I to have faith and hope. You hear this often when, when tragedy happens. You hear even secular people say, we, we have faith and hope. Faith and hope in what? See, Peter's not concerned about you and I having faith and hope. He's not. He already knows we do. He's arguing that we place our faith and our hope in God. In other words, the object of our faith and hope is what matters. Now, you may object and say, well, I'm not a person of faith. I'm a person of reason and science. In other words, you assume that faith and reason are opposed to each other. Whereas the Christian and, and the Christian tradition has never remotely seen faith and reason as in opposition to one another. And here's why. Christianity teaches that God is the creator of both faith and reason. He's the author of faith and reason. See, Christianity has never taught the idea of faith being a leap into the unknown like some like to claim. 
Rather, Christianity, through its history, from the New Testament writers to the church fathers to the medieval theologians and the reformers, have always taught what we could call a reasonable faith. That is a faith that rests upon claims and evidences that are reasonable. I mean, think about what I've done throughout this message. I've sought to reason with you. Now, whether my reason is good or not, that's up for debate. But part of what I'm trying to do is reason with you on the basis of Scripture and history, hoping, hoping that my argumentation would convince you that Jesus rose from the dead and the claims of Christianity are true. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. I want to persuade you. But I also believe that reason isn't enough. In other words, I may give you reasons for why I think Christianity is true, but it's the light of faith that will cause you to embrace, believe these truths, and live in light of them. And only God can do that. In other words, Christianity isn't against reason, but it knows the limitations of reason. See, if you're that person who thinks, I don't have faith, I only have reason, you need to understand that you've just demonstrated where you place your faith. You do have faith, and your faith resides in the belief that you can trust your reason, that reason is enough, and that it will lead you to the truth. You see, if you're a skeptic, that is, you need absolute proof. Absolute proof in order for you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You need to understand that you don't live that way with the rest of your life. A high percentage of our living is not a result of absolute proof, but is in fact a result of believing and trusting what another person has said. Whether it be face to face or in a book or what you've read on the internet, be careful with that one, or heard and seen on the TV. See, 99% of us had no issue believing that our parents were our actual biological parents. We didn't go get a DNA test to confirm this. And yet we trusted the words of our parents because there's reasonable evidence to suggest that they are our parents. Most of what we believe about science, we believe on the basis of another person's words. Same with history. See, when I married Gracie, I believed that when she said her vows, she really meant them. And that she was, she was and is committed to me till death do us part. Pray for her. I believed her words because there is good reason to believe her words. But notice, the reason can only take you so far. At some point, I had to say, she's given me reasons, but now I will believe her and marry her. We all live by faith. We have all placed our hope and confidence in something, whether it be our own reason or intellect, whether it be the belief that science can answer all the deep questions of life, which it can't, no matter how wonderful science is. Some place their faith and their hope in riches, some in health, Some in reputation and career. Some place their faith in self. Some place their faith in political systems and ideologies or politicians. Some place their faith in new age philosophies. I want to better myself. We could go on and on. 
But here's the point. The Apostle Peter, by arguing that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory, wants you to place your absolute trust and hope in God. Believing that just as he raised Christ from the dead, he will also raise you from the dead. Now, I want to close by addressing two different groups this morning. The first are those of us who are actually born-again Christians, those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus. I think this Easter Sunday, we need to examine our lives and truly ask ourselves, are we really living with our faith and hope in God? Are we really living in light of the resurrection hope that we have because of God raising Christ from the dead? Or is our life a little bit out of order? Is our faith and hope occupied by something else right now? Are our priorities aligned with the resurrection hope that we have? Are we enslaved to the fear of death? And if we discover that we've lost our way, I encourage you to take today, this very morning, to humble yourself before God and to ask him to restore your faith and your hope in him. And then do exactly what Peter instructs in verse 13. Prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ has overcome the grave and all who are in him, they too shall overcome the grave. Life has the last word, not death, because the resurrection and the life has defeated sin and death. Secondly, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I simply want to help you understand what Christianity offers. It's amazing to think about all the things that humanity has been able to accomplish throughout history. The discoveries that have been made when it comes to medicine and science, or the technological advances that humans have made. I remember my dad telling me the the story of selling newspapers as a 13-year-old on the side of the street the day the first moon landing happened, and he he was shouting on the street, get your newspaper, man lands on the moon. We've accomplished so much. We have medicines that have cured and eradicated diseases. We've literally been able to do medical practices that allow women to conceive even when it seems impossible. Now, whether that's ethical, that's a different conversation. But what we've been able to do is remarkable. And yet with all of our accomplishments, we still haven't figured out how to overcome our worst enemy, death. We can create a nuclear bomb, but we can't defeat death. In fact, as I just mentioned, we've created probably more things to bring death than anything else. See, all we've really done is slow the process down by a handful of years. And in so doing, sometimes we've created more problems. See, Christianity offers you the solution to the problem of death. And the solution is the God of Christianity has conquered death through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that everyone who believes upon the Lord Jesus will also conquer death 
and rise to do life. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 11 when speaking with Martha, who is grieved over the fact that Lazarus has just died. This is what Jesus says to her. I am the resurrection and the life. That's either true or it's not. And if it's not true, that's not a man to get moral lessons from. Do you understand the claim that he's making? I am the resurrection and the life. I am life itself. I am who I am. That's what Jesus is saying. The same words that God said to Moses. Who are you? I am that I am. I am being existence itself. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The solution is right before you. The question is whether or not you'll embrace it. Whether you'll turn to Jesus and trust his words and believe that he has overcome death on your behalf. I want to close by reading the words of Edward Fazer. He lays before us an ultimatum. The resurrection is primarily an affront to the, to the religious rivals of Christianity. It is the point where the tedium of dialogue finally ends and the serious business of conversion begins. The man who said, I am the way and the truth and the light, no one comes to the Father except through me, was either raised from the dead or he was not. And if he was, then his startling claims received thereby a divine seal of approval and the only rational response of the non-Christian can be to request baptism. If he was not so raised, then his words reveal him to have been a megalomaniacal lunatic. An interesting lunatic, maybe. A lunatic whose historical, cultural, religious, and moral impact has vastly, one might say miraculously, outweighed that of any sane man. But a lunatic all the same, and appropriately treated as such. There really is no third option. Even C.S. Lewis's liar alternative isn't all that plausible. I mean, what sane first century Jew would think claiming personal divinity a good way to raise a following? The resurrected Christ will not be dialogued with. He will be worshipped and obeyed, or he will simply be rejected as one would reject the ravings of Jim Jones or David Koresh. Politely rejected, perhaps, at least this side of the grave, we can concede to the dialoguers their good manners, but rejected and in no certain terms. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Unless you are prepared to call him your risen Lord, seek no religious meaning in his life and teachings, nor in his death. For the passion that is his sufferings is what it is only in light of the resurrection. If we who did not know him in the flesh worship at the foot of his cross, it is because we have worshipped first at his empty tomb. Before you is life and is death. Choose life.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That he is no longer dead. That the tomb is empty. And he has ascended to your right hand. And there he reigns over all of creation. And he intercedes for us. And I pray, Lord, that this morning, by your spirit, we would realign our faith and our hope so that they would be solely in you. And that there may be even some this morning who might, for the first time, place their faith and their hope in the God of resurrection life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.